the Art vs. Commerce podcast, and today is Elliot Rausch Day. I, um, man, do I love this guy. I don't even, it's emotional. He's emotional. Our relationship's emotional. He, he, he's a, he's a sage. I don't know what to say. Elliot Rausch, commercial director, um, got off the ground with a really heartbreaking, heartwarming, uh, at the same time, um, piece about, um, a man who put his dog down and that changed his whole career and now he does massive, massive work um, at the highest level, huge campaigns, Pepsi, uh, Apple, I don't know, yeah, like name, name a big company and he can, it's not out of his wheelhouse. So he, traveling the world and, 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 and just being the, living the type of life that I think a lot of people that I assume listen that I assume listen to me and listen to this thing um want to do you know you want to make a you want to make a a you want to put something on Vimeo that you made on a random day for your for your friend and have that explode and have Time Magazine call it you know viral sensation of the year and have tons of offers from production companies come right from it and have your whole life change because you you threw the secret sauce onto Vimeo and everybody recognized it and called you brilliant. That happened to Elliot. He literally has done what you want to do. And what's fascinating is that when you speak to him and when you hear him talk about it, 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 it it's not, it's not that it, it's, it's not that he talks it down, but it's that it's, 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 it's a realistic thing, man. Like it happens. And you, if you get what you want, what does that mean? Um, because it's obviously not all gravy is life is not roses. And it's, that ends up, I think it's great for all of us to hear that. Um, because there's a lot of wisdom that comes through that. And so um, every time I speak to him, it, I, I leave like a different, I leave it as a different person. Uh, it affects me. Our conversations affect me tremendously. Um, the you know he's 33 but i feel you know he's 200 years old um the the amount of thought that he puts into things is um inspiring so you know this one this one is cool this one is cool i'm 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 happy to share this and uh you know i look forward to your feedback these are these are the kind of conversations that far outweigh gear talk so Thanks for being here. The mindset was just emotional release. You know, I was looking... Purely. I think I was just... I was trying to scratch an itch that was just um, too hard to scratch. I'm not sure. I was trying to almost you know, baptize myself or have some kind of catharsis because there was like this heaviness in me. There's this darkness I was carrying around all the time, you know? Um, do you know from what? I would say, God, I was born a depressed kid. I mean, I was born a kid that did not fit in, that always had fear and anxiety. And I felt like I didn't, I didn't belong in this world. I didn't feel like I had two feet to stand on. And that was just like a constant thing in, in, in your mind where the, the instances I, that, that, created that for you or it was kind of that was there regardless of any variable i mean man i was in therapy when i was like in first grade oh, wow. you know because i was sort of either drawing pictures or complaining about things and i was a very eccentric kid i was a kid who i think like was way too hypersensitive 
And I think that's probably what it was. It was hypersensitivity. It wasn't depression. It wasn't anxiety. It was, I felt way too much, way too often. And, um, and the world was loud and crazy. And I just wanted to, uh, stay home with my mommy and daddy where they could protect me from uh, the big bad world, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so like kind of fucking around with music videos and that stuff, what was it? Why was it? uh, What was cathartic about it? I think it was just exercising some of my demons. You know, I had something in my heart and sometimes, I mean, I had sketchbooks upon sketchbooks of drawings that were representative of, um, thoughts I had or emotions I was feeling. And sometimes the pages were literally like ripped in half because my penmanship or the pencil would break or it was like I would throw it against the wall. It was this like, you know, this affair with this piece of paper. And then I think the moment I had this sort of sensuality or this intimacy with a medium where it was also sort of audible and it was, you know, people could engage it. It became this... Um, I guess, stronger remedy, you know, for my pain. I think that's what it was, yeah. Now, I'm just curious. Was it, was the pain being relieved most, like, on set and doing the work, or was it relieved most when you were done and you had finished something and that felt good and that was just, that good feeling sustained itself for a while? Like, where was the joy? You know, I think when I was younger, the, the joy was, was all, always sort somewhere at the top of the mountain, you know, and getting there. I, yeah. And I think, uh, I quickly realized that it was the process, you know, it was part of the, the sort of diving in and getting lost and consumed by a project that was actually the sort of intoxicating element, you know? Um, but early on, I think there was an illusion that if I, if I really completed something that was magnificent, then my pain would be fully, you know, eradicated. It was like I'd be somehow saved from my myself. You know. Mm. Well, I don't think that you got full full saving, but you did have a kind of a, an early career. The type of stuff that I think a lot of people want, and it never happens. Like making one thing, and it's kind of a huge explosion of opportunity that comes after that with Last Minutes with Odin. Which what? led up to that I mean you have to understand I I left advertising three years later when I was about 23 because I was like a full-blown alcoholic you know I had really um, not only found release in the craft but uh, you know pills and um, coke and uh, Friday and Saturday night catharsis while I was blacked out was really you know it was sort of um, creating the same kind of uh, release for me you know it was it was numbing the pain I didn't want to feel as much as I felt so it was a great great way to relieve myself until I started getting arrested and ending up in jail and crashing the car and it all came tumbling down and I should have died a hundred times over and my the final car crash that got me sober I should have killed my friend and myself and I didn't and I, I came to out of a blackout you know seven hour blackout and my car was totaled and I knew that I was uh, on borrowed time, you know, that was pretty, pretty much the last chance. And I was humbled, man. I was like, you know, you were 23 when that happened? I was 23, but I, you know, I, I was at 2021. 20, I had bought myself a beautiful apartment in Marina del Rey on the beach. I was doing very well for myself. I had gotten a job as an editor. I was making great money. You know, back then I was making $50 an, an hour, you know, and 
And, um, and anyways, so I was sober, man. And I was just trying to remain sober and I was just trying to like get my bearings and find myself. And, you know, I was, uh, just trying to help another alcoholic and I was just trying with to that film. No, not with the film. Just previous to that film. Oh, okay. This is the context. I mean, this is sort of what I was doing before that film is I was just trying to be of service. Mm-hmm. You know, I had been given a second chance. I wanted to serve humanity. And my friend Jason Wood was was a sort of an Eskimo. He was a saving sort of grace in sobriety, a man that um, I really um, owe my life to. You know, he pulled me out of myself a lot in sobriety. You know, he was putting his dog down. And brother, it was simple as like I was editing a news show at Fuel TV. It was a crappy news show. And I was just kind of like, man, thank you, God, for another day. I'm just going to serve this news show. I'm happy. And the people that are coming in this room, I'm here to just help make their lives better. Thank you for another day. And one day, Matt Taylor came in and said, hey, I bought a 7D camera. What's a 7D camera? It's this thing sort of like, I don't know, they call it a DSLR thing. Cool, Matt. Elliot, if you want to use it on any music video or something, like, let me know. And two minutes later, my friend Jason Wood called and said, Elliot, tomorrow I'm putting my dog down. Can you be with me? I don't want to do it alone. And I sat there and I thought, well, maybe I can be of service to both these guys. <laughs> and uh, and go out tomorrow and film Woody to remember Odin. The I haven't seen it in quite some time. I'm almost afraid to watch it because I know that I'm going to then need like 30 minutes uh, to to get myself back because a uh, few things, either professional films or anything, uh, move me to like tears like that. And I think being a dog owner, obviously, it touches on something. But um, so I haven't seen it in a while out of <laughs> staying away from it. But I, there were I remember sequences that were clearly thought out. I mean, pre-planned or at least it it they. They came, they came off that way. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing, man. It's, it was a, you know, we shot it in about an hour and a half, two That's hours. Crazy. Yeah, when we showed up. That's crazy. When we showed up, it was, I invited another DP, this guy, Lucas Corver, and it was raining. Yeah. And the guys were like, man, we should get out of here. This is such a bad idea. And I said, let's just follow the story. Let's honor Woody. Like, please. And so, you know, as Woody's going about his day, I'm sort of whispering in the guys, you know, in their ear, like, where to put the camera. I'm like, let's follow him when he's riding his bike from his house to go see the dog where he's staying at a friend. Matt, hop in the trunk, see if you can get any shots while we're in the, you're in the trunk, you know. And and, the, and and yeah, well, I guess following intuition then, and that's it, because it led to really iconic imagery. Yeah, and that's I mean, this is the uh, the great mystery, man. Yeah. You know, and I have to constantly speak about that film and talk about my, you know character study of this man Jason Wood and how I you know created this beautiful arc and the three act structure of how many years ago was it probably what five years ago maybe and you're just I can imagine it's kind of like a a rock band that's just tired of playing their like biggest hit or something like talking about it or how do you feel about it at at this point I think it's are you tired of it I think brother it's it was so incomprehensibly like mystical well, because what changed after that? Well, which everything for my career, yeah. It was like I went to bed that night and woke up the next morning, and you know, and you know, a couple of weeks later, like Newsweek is, you know, is talking about it, and uh, Times Magazine's calling it the greatest thing, you know, one of the greatest things that happened that year, and and they just started 
taking on a life of his own and traveling everywhere, you know, and people are calling me saying this and that. And, uh, I what don't were know. They, what were they saying? Oh man, we want to sign you to our company. We have a screenplay. There's this thing that you're the greatest. Oh my God. You know, how many, how many calls like that did you get? Oh man, I was getting like 20 emails a day that were like that. Yeah. That were like opportunity emails. I was losing my mind. I was like, what, well, this I'm really interested fans in. Fans or people that were, you know, wanting to work on some, have me work on their project or. When you, when they were like the bigger companies saying stuff, I mean, how did you take all that in? I mean, listen, uh, I wasn't like a naive artist, you right. know, I came up to pay my bills, you know, early on, I was in sales, you know, I really studied, I think a lot of psychology I wasn't like a sensitive little, oh my God, this is, I mean, this, I'm an artist. And oh, good. I want to hear this then. So I knew what was coming. I knew, I knew what they were doing. I'm not, you know, I, I had worked in advertising for three years. And when I heard someone say, hey, we've got this brand and we really want it to have the same emotion as your dog film. I knew what that meant. And I knew that it was impossible, you know? So, um, and at the same time, I knew what that kind of attention could do to someone like me and I knew how absolutely dangerous it was what were your biggest fears at the time well, my biggest fears was getting famous off uh, off a dear friend who put his dog down who was still struggling financially you know having some kind of financial gain at the expense of a, a dear friend who uh, exposed himself vulnerably uh, for my camera how was he taking to the popularity of the story? I mean, I think for a couple of years, it was like um, shocking for him the amount of times he was approached in the streets. But then I think, you know, when the film started winning awards, there was grant money and it got really sticky. So we, you know, I think we hit a really low point in the friendship or to the point where we weren't talking, you know. Because they were uh, trying to figure out the proper way to split that. Yeah, I mean, I went to Vigma and said, I want to give the grant money to my friend. I don't I don't own any of that grant money. I said, you have to spend the grant money on a new film. It's part of the prize. So, mm. so it was a, you know, I had to involve Woody. I found a, I found a loophole of a way to, to pay him. But, Make him a producer or something. Yeah, but, but yeah, man. I, I mean, this is, I think this is, and you understand this, this is a major issue for most documentarians, you know, who are going into third world countries or somehow documenting someone's pain and suffering yeah. and then standing on some platform a year later collecting some kind of uh, trophy for it. You know, it's really sticky. Yeah. It's sad. You know, it's really saddening because I don't know. Well, as you, obviously it's kind of like regardless of your um, understanding of What's, heck, what's going on and the types of emails and calls that you're getting. The train has left the station and you're on it. Right. Um, maybe you can choose what track to a degree, but you're moving. Right. So what, what happens next? I mean, what happens next is that uh, I had uh, several companies wanting to represent me. I had one company that reached out and I told him I don't want to ever get back into advertising. And he said, you know, let me sign you and take care of you. I'll protect you from it. And... Uh, you know, if you maybe work one job a year, then cool. You have some extra money to play around with. And I thought, cool. I'll take the risk. So, you know, I signed to that company. And within the first couple of weeks, there was like three or four boards that came in, you know. 
agencies wanting to work with me on certain projects. And um, what company were you with? Uber Content. Yeah. And these boards were they upsetting to you because it was basically what you said you didn't want to do, or how'd you feel about it? No, man, it was like you know a Nike job for LeBron James and Gold's Gym and sort of three short films about people that were struggling with their weight and. So there were things that you were happy to like. I was excited. Oh okay. yeah, I was like, oh my god, there's this sort of way, you know that. Uh, but the fact that they were, for I mean, it was for Nike, but that didn't bother you because the creative was sensitive and thoughtful. Was that like? Kind I think of, so. Yeah, I think there's a silver lining in it. I kind of yeah. was like, okay, these aren't commercials; these are short films, or these are like, you know, ways to continue to create film and maintain my integrity. And still feel like I'm contributing something to society. That I'm not just, you know, making films that are, um, you know, stealing resources. So, did you feel like there were certain parts of you that were changing um, through go- by going through this process? The commercial, going back into advertising? And, you know, playing in the deep end of the pool with a lot of money and stuff. Like, how are you dealing well, what, what, what do you think changed about you? What stayed the same? And just because it changed doesn't mean that it changed in a negative way. No. I mean, listen, right now, I'm, I'm, I think it's important that I stay close to my pain. And what I mean by that is that same pain I had as, as a child, I think was really important, you know? When you say important, important for what end? I think important for life, for perspective, you know, my pain was compassion. My pain was empathy. My pain was, you know, um, the, uh, the longing to cry every time I saw someone struggling, you know, and that was the thing I, I've tried to numb my whole life. I've tried to numb that. I don't want to feel that. And I think what happened was, um, with personal success, with financial gain, I became very insulated. And I became very set apart and I was no longer connected to my, my own pain and to the pain around me. Because you were able to stay distracted through having money and just being able to spend it or what? Comfort, um, workaholism, the assumption or the sort of ideology of like personal significance that I was somehow more important than someone else because of my excellence or my, you know, gain. When did you first start to realize, to like feel, to be self-aware that you were doing that? I don't, I I don't think I re I don't think I realized I was doing that until hindsight a couple of years later because the sensation was a deadness. It was a vast emptiness within myself and within the way I was connecting with others. And it wasn't until one day I was in uh, Uruguay sitting on the coast on a job. I had a lot of sort of success at the time. What job was it? Can you say? I can't say. No problem. Yeah. But um, but put it this way. Uh, I was sitting there on the beach and I was watching these people walking by. And somebody told me, you know, like, Uruguay, Uruguay is kind of a third world country, man. Like people don't have much down there. So, and I was like, okay. So going into it, I was thinking these are going to be some people that are struggling. Well, here I am, you know, what do they call it? The, the, uh, 
the boardwalk where everyone's sort of uh, the the not the placa the uh, the playa the beach yeah yeah anyway so hand in hand you see these families and these friends and these people that are hugging and holding each other and they're laughing and there's this vibrancy and there's this aliveness to these people and I just had this urgency in me. And I thought, oh my God, here I am responding to emails, setting up my next job, thinking about da 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 da. And I don't have this aliveness. And I went up to a man and I pulled him aside and I said, please tell me, why are you smiling? What is. You really. That yes, actually happened? Yes. So why are you so happy? What do you say? Oh, well, that's easy, man. You know, I uh, have my friends. I have my family, uh, I get outdoors a lot, and uh, I don't work too hard. And I thought, hmm. And the one thing that I can say that I really felt at that moment, and I would later find out that it was actually the truth, was that this man didn't see himself as any different than those around him. There was no separation for him. His family, his friends... He wasn't striving to be anything more than they were. Like his communal sensibility. Yeah, and you realized that you were. Well, I realized that I was disconnected from that. Somehow I had become separate from my brother. How long do you think that took to reach its peak? From the time that you got this job, from the time that, you know, from Last Minutes with Odin comes out, you get a job at, this, at a production company, you start doing big work. How long did it take until you were like full blast this person that... Disconnected. That you didn't realize, that you didn't like know or... Well, you have, to, you, have to, you, know, you have to remember, I'm sober, so I have to be brutally honest. So on a daily basis, I can't placate anyone within the rooms of recovery. I can't placate myself. I can't bullshit for too long because someone will eventually call me on if I'm being vulnerable so i would say i maxed at it about two and a half three years where it was like okay i need to go seek some help i need to go find out another way and um because i think it was interesting a thought came to my mind before when you were saying that you need to be close to your pain um in order to be real and grounded and aware um what what would you say to the critic who just says, well, that's just like, you know, artistic masochism? I think, I think if, you, if you do not experience pain, if you're somehow um, living a, a reality where you are not moved on a daily basis by the suffering of those around you, I would say you're either numb or you're living in some kind of illusion. Are you romanticizing it? No. What's no. the difference? No, I think it's it's by nature. I think it's by nature. I think our species is is naturally. I really believe we're you know we're naturally empathetic creatures. I think we have incredible intuition and sensitivity. Some of us maybe have, um, you know, we're hypersensitive. You know, the musicians and the artists and the drug addicts and the alcoholics and those that just cannot deal with the amount of um, you know, emotion they feel on a daily basis. Yeah. But, um, no, I think, man, I think, listen, I think like, uh, maybe, maybe pain's the wrong word, you know? 
I would say staying staying connected to who I really am. I think that's what I think that's what's probably most important. And who I really am, yeah. and this isn't a generalization for the for everyone, who I really am is I'm actually really sensitive, really in touch with like um the world around me. Um almost to the point where it like can kill me, you know. <laughs> no, no, I I get that and I can understand how that actually makes you that's your secret weapon for your art that's your special sauce i mean it's the way of like and i'm not saying you know using that or literally like using that for that gain but it's more that it's the only way you know how to make this stuff and that it actually allows for a perception that most people don't have which i think is what ends up being the selling point of anything that you might make or else you know i want to watch something because it's a perspective i hadn't considered and if you're viewing the world in a very unique way, then that makes it attractive to sure. want to watch. And I guess with that in mind, because as you move forward and you started doing much bigger jobs, you know, huge brands, the biggest brands in the world making their commercials, obviously the stakes got bigger, the responsibilities got bigger, the restrictions became uh, more intense. So how are you dealing with um, being hired for the creativity that you have and then being restricted from it. Well, I think, I think where I'm at currently is um, probably coming to a stronger understanding of the, the um, compartmentalization of my, um, my approach, you know, really being able to understand that um, there's two worlds you know, sometimes in the creative, um, in the creative field or the, or the, the way we express ourselves, uh, I think there's different worlds, there's different language, you know, I think the hope early on was that it all bleeds together, you know, that somehow it all sort of, um, bleeds together and, you, you know, your sensibilities will be respected across the board, but, you know, I, uh, for me, it's, um, were you frustrated in the beginning? Of course. I think any any I think every artist thinks that he's entitled to have his way. That someone's gonna pay him money, you know, to be who he is. You know, and do what he wants to do. Because he's the artist. And that started to obviously the foundations of that reality started to show. I think someone would lead you to believe that's what you know, is the reality we're hiring you because we really love what you do. That's what they say during prep. Right, 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 <laughs> Once right, you get right. to post and um, they're not too happy with the particular version of an edit. Right. You know, things really start to show. And yeah. so, you know, I'm assuming that as you did more of them, you got better at handling this aspect. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious, like how... Did you get better at it? What did, what did you change? Like, what do you think? How did you progress to deal with that in a, in, a, in a good way? And like positively, how did you get better at that? I would say, you know, it's having all my illusions illuminated. You know, finally, like having my heart broken for good. Oh, geez. So that I could finally be free, you know, and sort of debunking some of my own theology so I could have uh, more capacity for for real freedom you know so what does that mean 
kind of bringing the language down to down to earth. Sure. Like, what does that mean then? That you didn't, that you just expected for your work to be kind of like, there's more cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. It's not just you. Yeah. You understand that. And now it's like, well, I'm not gonna hold on to what my grand vision is as strongly because I just know that there's no way it's going to make it through the whole process intact and that that's freeing because your expectation is different now? Well, I think the, I think, yes, I think you sort of nailed it, but I think it's also about going back to that young man who was just getting sober, you know, um, what I really loved about him was that he was more interested in helping others before, um, himself. And so today I realize that even though an agency might be asking for my opinion or the referencing some of my work in our current culture, what they really need is a leader, uh, a director who is pulling the mountain, you know, they're sort of sailing the ship. Um, and so what it's become for me in that capacity is understanding that yes i may have some creative capacity to explore ideas good chance you know that i'm not there's going to be a lot of people on my set that need to be empowered to do their best to be great at what they do and um in that realm that really becomes the most important job for myself yeah so i put my artist cap I leave it at home next to the cappuccino and the little easel you know, and my little book of poetry. Yeah. And I put on my, um, uh, on my leader suit, you know, and I go out and, um, and I try to look for ways to help not only bring, um, bring the project, uh, to a place that is sensible and clear for everyone, but also empowering everyone to do their best. Well, yeah, and I think that that's nice that in a certain um, in a certain job where there is a bunch of people that have things that they need and like there's really no way around it that at the that it then just becomes well I'm just like we're, there are these twenty people that are on that are my crew and it's literally just trying to like navigate them through the day so that they can actually have enjoyed themselves that we get what we need yeah and like there's a victory in that. But mind you, there may be a good chance that, like, because of that approach, my commercial success doesn't become as, you know, prolific or I don't have this strongest sort of work, you know, to show for myself. Because you've I've taken a backseat? Well, not a backseat at all. No, I just, I'm not losing sleep or fighting every human being to get the vision that I want. So you're, so is, is that, are you saying that? And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that's kind of a thinly veiled thing of if I'm not suffering enough, I'm not sure if it means that I'm working hard enough or I, if it's good enough. No, I think if you're really wanting to fight for your vision in the commercial space, yeah. you're going to need to fight. Right. You're going to need to literally confront people and say, I am not doing it the way you want to do it. I'm doing it my way. Or figure out some kind of manipulation tactic to do it the way you want to do it to create the project the way you want to create it knowing you probably won't work with that agency again well that's i was going to say where's the balance 
because obviously you can go through a project and be that guy and maybe you make something that you're really happy with, but they're probably not going to hire you again because you were a pain. Um, how do you, you're obviously, your career is going great and, and, and it's progressing and you're making, you know, beautiful things that are, that are, that are moving. So how are you finding this balance? I don't know, man. I, I really, I think it's like I was, I think in the early stages I was trying to develop a, you know, some kind of philosophy for balance. And I think now like my real approach is I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm going to be true to myself and I'm going to be present with every conversation, opportunity, every dynamic um, that is presented inside of these jobs. And I'm just going to be true. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be like, you know, the best, the best leader, the best uh, servant to the bigger project that I can possibly be. And it's so for me, it's become almost hyper simple. I'm not I'm no longer trying to figure out, you know, if I am doing the right thing or whether this is selling out or this is da 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 da. Listen, this is who I am. This is where I stand. Sometimes I'm brutally honest on set. I don't agree with your decision. I completely disagree with it. I do not think it's the best for the project. I think the decision you're making is wrong. I'd like to propose another idea, but if you're not happy with that idea, I'm happy to give you what you need. Mm. But I have to tell you before I do it, this is what I would suggest. So I mean, I, for me, I feel like I'm being very honest and open. People know that uh, I'm not uh, dialing it in or phoning it in, and um, and I'm giving them options. Yeah. No, and it sounds like I like the notion, like hyper simplicity is is. Um, you've gone through it so much, and the experience is so high that it is complex. But like your understanding of it has become focused, and you kind I, of know how to. Because you're making a lot of complex decisions and, re, and, and, and finding like the simplistic answer. But the calculations in your head are not simple. Well, I think it's become intuitive now. You know, yeah. it's, it's more of like, it's not, uh, I'm not sitting there anymore thinking about where this puts Elliot Roush the brand. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, here's a phone call. It's six people on the other line. I don't think they're clearly understanding what I'm saying. Maybe I need to speak more clearly let me really understand what they're trying to say. Wow, that one guy sounds kind of angry. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder, can I just ask you, is there something I'm not communicating right? You know, I'm almost like so intimately involved with every sort of moment in the process that like it's just, it's me presenting my most authentic self yeah. in that space and just praying and hoping the bigger story works out. Yeah, no, and I've even noticed, you know, you look people in the eye and call them by their name and that that's I do. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> and most people, it's funny. I like when you talk to someone, it's, it's rare than that people call you by your name hmm. as they're talking to you hmm. to the point that I noticed that you do that with, hmm. with me. And wow. I think that that's actually a really good, that's really good communication, especially in um, those types of heated creative discussions. I think that that is a really nice way of, letting someone feel like you're on the same side. Well, you got, you got to, I think you got to think, man. It's like we draw so many lines in the sand and we start, you know, I think I've done it my whole life. It's like, you're an artist and you're not, and you're an asshole and you know, and you're a piece of shit and I hate you. And you know, 
and you're a snotty advertising fuck who I just can't stand. And the truth is, that guy is petrified because he wants to keep his job. He's got two kids at home. He's not respected by his client. They have totally emasculated him. He's barely hanging on to his own sanity. And he's just praying to God the director won't, you know, push back anymore because he feels like he just wants to have some voice. His wife hates him. You know, it's like, and for me to enter into that sort of space and not see him with compassion, to not understand that he's struggling with the same struggle that I have is really sad, you know, and it creates this sort of stigma. So for me, it's like, as I'm talking to anyone um, today, whether I'm, you know, I'm, I'm immediately judging them or trying to typecast them, the next thought is, this is, I'm looking at myself, this is me, you know, their, their bitterness, their pushiness, I have that same stuff going on inside of me. How can I develop more empathy, compassion, and how can I, um, how can I find some kind of, uh, you know, collaborative uh, space? Yeah. No, that's great. Um, I don't do that all the time. I mean, most of the time, I'm well, angry. you know, that's the struggle. Obviously, like that's that. We, that we hope that we can. It's a second thought. That's the version of your best self that you're trying to like totally. be, but it's not always going to be. It's the second thought. If yeah. I pause long enough. Right. Yeah. If you don't let the initial gut reaction. If you manage to quell that, right, and you can actually go from like rage to think, yeah. or or like you know instinct to. I'm still working on that. Aren't we all? For me, it's like rage for like two days sometimes, and I have to like. <laughs> okay. Need to take a need to take a weekend. Yeah. Um, I hear that. It it and you know I think it's really easy to talk about the problems that come with bigger projects and more money and stuff, but like, um, there's obviously a lot of positive things. Like what, what's been exciting about the fact that you have, like sometimes you're sitting on like a huge budget that has all this opportunity because you could just, oh, like any idea you can put money towards making it happen. Like what, uh, what's that been like? And like, have, like what, what it's been like when you're imagining what a, what a product can be and not feeling any sort of, it's like, you know what? I really want this helicopter shot. And it's mm. like, guess what? You can have that. Mm. Um, obviously limitation is a great path for creativity, but when like those limitations are gone, how are you dealing uh, with this awesome, but yet still very much problem. I don't think too much about it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm always like, I'm always probably coming in under budget because I'm like, we don't need like six VTR tents. Like, you know, we don't need to have craft service at every location. The producers like Elliot, we don't. We can afford like a total taco truck. Like, yeah. let's just get it. I don't need to fly first class. Let's put some of that money. You know, I don't need a helicopter shot. There's a drone that, you know, and so I don't think I'm thinking that way ever. It's that doesn't get me excited. You know, I don't think that gets me excited. It's well, the, maybe not excited, but does it, has it allowed you to, have you, has it ever allowed you positively now to think differently about any creative that you might be? No, I think it's probably, it's probably, I don't know. I would say when I've had less money, it's been more creative, you know, when I've had more, more sort of. There's more restriction and I have to be more creative with the resources. For some reason, I feel like better stuff comes up. Yeah. Isn't that just it's weird. the truth? No, I, I'm not surprised by the answer. I'd, yeah. Um, I guess it's good to hear. Um, but yeah, it's... So does that... Do you... That, 
does that create some hesitation when a project comes along and the budget is very large and you're like, well, that is actually just going to cause more headaches? Like, does that thought process go through? Are you like, is there a sweet spot in, in budgets that you're trying to hope for? Because anything bigger is kind of just like bringing on a, a mess that you don't want or? No, I think, I think what's more important for me is time. Mm. You know, I don't think there's any more time in the uh, space of advertising. Everything is like rushed. It's last second. I think budgets are shrinking dramatically. The problem is like the union sort of, you know, DGA, it's like, so many non-union jobs or working with directors that are willing to do things for free. And then you have an agency that's asking a sort of union guy to do, to shoot like seven vignettes a day, you know, for like a shoestring budget. And you're just like, where is this coming from? So for, and, and by the way, and we're shooting next week (laughs) and you're like, and who, like where, and the the production company is like, they want to shoot in 50 countries in one day. And, you know, it was like, it was, it was great. It was like, you know, um, Starbucks came to me and they're like, you know, it was a great opportunity. And I lost the job because on the phone I said, I can't do that. There's no humanly way possible that my production company or I can do that. And they found some, they found a way, you know, they found, did, did they find, yeah, they've partnered. Obviously with, you could find someone who'll say, sure, we'll do that. But yeah. then did, did they, were they actually able to do it? I, I mean, they were able to do it. Sure. Was it anything spectacular? Gotcha. I think that's kind of this, this, at least the sadness that I have is, um, I don't know if we recognize like greatness anymore. I think people are really had, you know, satisfied with sort of like mediocre stuff. Like as long as it's making the budget, you know, and we're producing content, then we're safe, you know? And I think that, I don't know, man, I think it's like, I think there's some great stuff out there, but I don't. I don't think it's humanly possible to shoot some of these things within the timeline, the budget that uh, that's being delivered. Yeah. Well, how how much um, effort are you putting towards non-commercial uh, filmmaking? I think you know I've sort of gotten away from the short films. Um, Purposely. Yeah, I think so because it was kind of like I don't know. That was kind of like the music video for me. It was just kept. I understand that. It was like this thing that kept allowing me to sort of scratch an itch and then the itch was sort of scratched and now there's a deep longing once again that has opened up within me and that is not satisfied by um by gmo uh sugar and uh you know and you uh, need a feature well it's just the characters have become more complex the the stories more time to dive into what you actually want yeah the story the stories that i i'm now uh really absorbing and developing um, they can't leak out in a five or six minute film. There's no way you could, you know, speak the sort of complexity of the story within that that space. So, so are you developing scripts now? Are you writing or are you yeah. searching for scripts that other people are writing and you just want to direct it? What are you, what's... I have like three, three projects in development. Um, some are collaborations with writers, um, uh, collaboration with other directors, other um, producers, but they're all kind of... Um, self-generated well, actually one, one of them is not um but i think they're there i would say they're th- they originally they were themes you know that i was deeply interested in and then um it's been sort of exercising um a different muscle you know so i think it's been a long season of uh learning the art of filmmaking and understanding what goes into a screenplay 
what goes into a longer feature, you know, piece. Well, yeah, I'm sure that the commercial work has gotten your chops up. You well, know? I think, I mean, I don't know. No? I, I, think it, I think it helps you as a leader. You know, it helps you as a... That's huge. As someone that pulls a large group through an experience and gets to the finish line. It sort of like teaches you the brutality of production, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, uh, I guess that, I think that's what I meant as well. Yeah. Um, w- what kind of genres are you or yeah what what kind of vibe are do you gravitate towards i don't i don't think it's necessarily genre or vibe it's more really interesting characters um who are appeasing some kind of uh almost psychological or anthropological or sociological like research that i'm doing so i'm coming up with some kind of like uh I don't know, like thesis or this idea that I'm just, I'm obsessed with. It's totally outside of um, film. You know, it's like something that I just cannot consume enough of. That could simply be an idea, you know, about capitalism or about, you know, upward mobility and sort of. Filmmaking starts to serve the purpose as the medium to allow you to actually get get interested and dive deep into things that are absolutely not filmmaking. Exactly. And that's, and that. To me, where, where it gets dangerous is I can spend three or four months in research and sort of lose my you know interest in creating film. That'll happen. Yeah. So I kind of just start. I mean, I was last year I was thinking about going back to school to um, to become a psychologist, you know, to, to get my psych major. You know, that, and that uh, fits the bill. I could see you doing that. I know, but it's kind of like, you know, I, it's because I just became obsessed with. Uh, but that fell away. Who knows, man? Who knows? I still, I mean, for me, there is nothing greater than helping someone else find their own truth or find their own, um, their own healing, you know, or to become their, their, the, the best version of their true selves. You well, know? like that, that discussion kind of gets me to what I want to talk about in the latter half or, you know, is the, um, I met you at a, a film conference called Masters in Motion and you were presenting there. And um, that presentation was, just to paint the picture, everybody else was talking about in it for technical stuff. Like either, you know, one conversation was about camera tech, another maybe about like, you know, the different techniques of telling a story. And yours was just insanely personal. I mean, you got up there and just like took your clothes off and <laughs> told right. everybody, here I am. <laughs> right, right. And like, and, and cause you're also, you're, you were talking to a group of people who every single person in that room was aspiring to have your career path. Right. Everybody wants to throw something on Vimeo, have it explode right. and then go down this rabbit hole of uh, perceived fun. Yes. Um, and you, t- you went up there and you told people that like, you know, the grass isn't greener right? and that like, well, what are you sacrificing for yourself? And, right. Uh, I remember one guy during Q and A was actually kind of mad at you. Oh yeah, because he he felt of like I think it scared him because he's like you know well shit. what are we supposed to do now? Yeah, he's like I came here to hear you tell me how to like be you and you just told me not to be you. Right. Like that, like I, like that was kind of I think what it broke down to and I guess when you mm. like where were you mentally when you wrote that? I think the plane still hadn't landed, but I'd done all the research. You know, I had. <laughs> I had done a year worth of research trying to explore some of the dissatisfaction I experienced um, within the sort of trajectory that I was on and 
coming to a strong thesis, a strong rooted understanding of what had transpired and being able to really point to important voices, you know, that were saying the same thing. Um, it hadn't landed in my heart yet, but I think I was fully, you know, committed, um, to seeing my world through a different, uh, a different lens, you know, you're starting to get in a sense, like sick of this routine and uh, unhappiness or something? I just think, man, it was just like, there was no voice telling me, there was no warning, there was no elder that was like, be careful, because you may get what you want, and that's not always a good thing. You know, there was no, at the time, there was no book, or there was no celebrity that was like, openly confessing to the fact that they had arrived, and um, they didn't feel satisfied, you know? And I think I went on a, deep journey to figure out like was I the only one in the world you know somehow on this like fast track to fame and feeling lost you know why aren't there other sort of voices and then it was that year that I just was able to kick up every piece of research and explore that idea and come to you know an hour and half speech about it yeah that hadn't really fully registered for me yet you know well I think part of the catharsis was Giving the speech. I think so, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and then the discussions that happened afterwards. Yeah. Because then you and I did. Yep. And it was, uh, it's a discussion that I think of, from like I still think of. Right. Um, I think it was moving for everybody involved. There must have been five or six people. And I, the biggest discussion, which was set off from, from your presentation, was this really a holistic macro view about the world, about humanity. Is it optimist? Like, are you like optimistic or are you pessimistic? And everything kind of like fell on either side. And at the time, right. at the time it, it was like, I was trying to find how it could be optimistic. I took the pessimistic side. You, yeah. And there were guys that were literally like taking like, yeah. you know, like three or four guys on my side, two guys on your side were both smoking cigarettes. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, you know, a few beers were, were in everybody and it was like, well, no, it's like... I'm going to fucking tell you why you should be happy, you motherfucker. Yeah, listen yeah. to me. You need to be happy. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like, no, you need to be sad. Um, right. And it's... At the time, it... What, why... What? Where do you think... Where do you think you were... I mean, we've touched on it a lot, but I guess to s- summarize within this, is like, where do you think you were that it was pessimistic and how... I believe it's changed for you. Yeah. And like, what... what what changed? You know, I'll tell you, man. I believe there's some there's some value to calling out the shadow. You know, to really calling a spade a spade. And to calling sometimes bullshit on yourself. I don't think it was pessimism. I think it was it was a cry. It was a, it was a, it was a corporate confession. Hey, you know, there's a part of me I don't like. And... I've, I've been operating under that part of me for a little while here. I'm going to call a spade a spade and tell you why it's not working anymore. Um, and I need to really yell this out. I need you to hold me accountable and I need to tell you so that I will not return to that, uh, to that space. And I think, um, your perspective was incredibly optimistic, but I think I was mourning at the time. You know, I don't, I think I was mourning in an old way. It was like, 
I was trying to put to death a certain ideology. Um, and I think you were trying to pull me from that. You were trying to say, Elliot, lighten the fuck up, dude. Like, it's not all bad. And I think what I was trying to tell you was like, dude, I need to die. Like, I'm standing in front of you. I need Your to ideology needs yeah, to die. Yeah, my ideology. Elliot standing in front of you needs to like, I need to bury him so I can resurrect a new man, you know? And I think that's what you were speaking to at the time. You were speaking to a, I think you were speaking to a, you know, a young boy who was on the, the precipice of changing, of transformation. And today, you know, for me, the the nature of things is a little more paradoxical. There's more gray than there is black and white, and there's the good and bad, and w- even within me. And I don't think that's ever going to change, you know? It's funny that, you know, leaving a more black and white extreme ideology, uh, obviously gray is certainly not um, a definition of clarity. Right. But that there's actually been a relief within that and like an, an ability to kind of smile a little bit more and like let things come. And yeah. that, and that comes from things not being as under as defined and um, rigid. I believe so. Yeah. I think it's, it's the, the place of powerlessness. You know, it's the place of surrender. It's the place of letting go and knowing that um, you can only do the best that you can do. And you can only show up every day um just being honest, you know, and open. And maybe, just maybe having fun while you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think there's a, there's another layer within me that is still wanting to die. And that is, uh, that comes from, you know, my mother and my mother's mother and our Greek heritage. And it is this idea that if I am not, suffering, if I'm not struggling, then I'm not connected. Well, yeah, I touched on it earlier and it's like, you know, the fear that if I'm not suffering, that I don't, that my, that I don't have, I can't make good art or like that. I'm not going to be able to tap into something that I've like, well, if I'm not suffering, I have no story to tell. And I would say, um, there is a piece of me that's very comfortable pulling the blanket of suffering over me and sort of the blanket of, you know, oh God, what a horrible world we live in. I need to tell stories to save the world. You know, that to me is comfortable. <laughs> Waking up and going like, wow, thank you, God, for another day. Look at the sun. My wife is beautiful. You know, I have everything I need. That to me is really risky. That's a vulnerable living because there's a chance, you know, some of that stuff could be taken away from me. So if I'm always, you know, oh, oh, well, then I'm never surprised. I'm never caught off guard when shit goes, you know, sour, you know. So, yeah, that's still sitting, you know, in front of you at the age of 33. I'm continuing, I think, to grow uh, spiritually, emotionally. And I know that there's sort of a, there's an old way of comfort that is longing to, uh, you know. That you're trying to kick. Yeah, man. It's like, you know, life's good. Life is always good. Even, you know, even in the pain. That's my heavy revelation this year is that you can actually rejoice in your pain because that pain is there for a reason. You being alive, you caring. You caring. Yeah. And there's a lesson within it. Yeah. It's It's funny because my last question was the notion of advice and what you might give, but also if you think back on from when you started 
like formally, like when you were, I'm, I'm making films and maybe even before Odin and then after that and obviously the ascendancy upward. Um, what sort of advice would you give to aspiring filmmakers who think that they have a certain level of talent that they can like do something with? But at the same time, how do you think that that advice has evolved as you've grown? Because I would imagine that the thing that you might tell someone if they caught you at the right moment and you were feeling, you know, um, you're in the mood to pontificate and tell someone something. Mm. How do you think, what, what, how have those words changed over the years? I think they're the same. It's the same advice, man. What is it? I think it's just, you know, take every second as an opportunity to be present and to be intentional and to be honest. And don't worry about the rest. The rest will take care of itself, you know, just, you know, as my, as my father said, as I turned to him a couple of weeks ago, I was like, Pop, you ever get scared of dying? You know, or you ever think about getting older? I mean, you're like 64. He starts laughing. He's like, why would I think about that? I'm like, why wouldn't you? He's like, because look at me, man. I'm here sitting next to you. We're about ready to watch a comedy show. I'm filled with love for you. I'm filled with joy because I'm about ready to laugh. And there's nothing else that's real. You know? I'm like, Pops, you're smoking way too you know, like, what are you? <laughs> you are out of your mind. And he just sort of smiled at me, you know, and said, All right, okay. But it's uh I don't know, man. I don't think we have much we we can have the greatest intentions, we can develop a whole game plan, we can, you know, project how we want our life to be. Hindsight, man, so many things have turned out differently than I wanted them to so many things most things I've been given what I've I need not what I wanted and I trust that today you know um well that's good yeah that's great. I think so it's freedom you know it's kind of like all I got to do right now is worry about making sure I'm present with you having a sensible conversation you I believe know. we've done that <laughs> <laughs> I feel pretty good about that it was an hour well spent <laughs> Well, um, you know, I really appreciate your time, and I've, uh, I knew that I was going to enjoy this conversation, and um, yeah, a lot, to, a lot to take away. Awesome. I, I thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you.